I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV, and you can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. Our guest today is director of Brown Lifespan. She's the associate professor of emergency medicine and a physician at Brown University, associate dean of strategy and innovation at the School of Public Health. Megan Ranney, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on. It's a joy to be here with you. J&J data suggests it will be approved imminently for emergency use. Relative to the Pfizer and Moderna data, what was most striking to you about this batch of J&J data? So there's a few things um, about this J&J data that really caught my eye. Um, The first is obviously its overall efficacy at protecting against moderate disease is slightly lower than we saw with the Moderna and Pfizer data, but it seems to protect just as well against severe disease, hospitalization, and death, which are really the numbers that we care most about as healthcare providers. The other exciting thing about this vaccine is that it has fewer side effects, um, and of course that it's gonna be much easier to distribute. It has a much more stable shelf life, uh, and so logistically is gonna be easier to actually get shots in arms, uh, particularly because it only requires one dose. What have we learned so far about the durability of immunity for the existing platforms? So Pfizer and Moderna in the United States and AstraZeneca to the extent that it's been used. Uh, Do we think that immunity for those is in a certain range of six to eight months or a year or three months So as long as we have been following people up after getting both doses of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, they have maintained immunity, um, which is just terrific. The novel coronavirus has really only been around for a little bit more than a year. Certainly vaccines have not been getting in arms for that long. So it's tough to say exactly how long the immunity will uh, stay around for. But so far, all signs are good. Um, The other really important thing to note is that the current existing vaccines appear to create a much stronger vaccine-induced immunity than the natural immunity that you would get from catching covid Uh, So not only so far does it seem like that immunity is durable, but also it is strong and suggests that even folks who have had COVID still do need to get vaccinated. We don't really know anything even speculatively about the duration of immunity for J&J or do we? Not really. I mean, again, it's a pretty darn new uh, vaccine. And so not even speculatively can I say, oh, it's going to last six months or nine months. And there is this question of whether or not we're going to have to have a booster for it. But also there's the same question from Moderna and Pfizer. And we've been seeing all this news about novel variants coming out. So far, um, the existing vaccines seem to work well against those novel variants. But it just takes one uh, new variant to overcome that. And so it is entirely plausible that we'll need boosters for any of these in the years to come. Can you explain, and I asked this recently on the podcast, why the J&J format, which is not mRNA, only is requiring one dose for what we believe will be similar efficacy? Um, What is it about that platform that allows for it to be effective after one dose? And we should note that that is after possibly three or four weeks of that single injection. 
Yeah. So, so I think that two things. First is that first, that caveat that you just gave is really important that just like with the mRNA vaccines, we see the efficacy start to rise after about 14 days and not reach full effect until 28 days. Um, I'm going to give the caveat that I am neither a virologist nor an immunologist. I'm a public health specialist and researcher who is also an emergency physician. So um, with that caveat, you know, it's the way that J&J designed and tested their vaccine versus Moderna and Pfizer. They have a little bit of special sauce that has stayed behind the hood. Um, it's not completely clear to me why we would think that we don't need a second dose for J&J versus we do for the mRNA, except for the fact that that's what their phase one and phase two trials showed us. In your area of expertise of emergency medicine, one of the striking things that was pointed out to me by the CEO of the Survivor Corps, a group of activists who were survivors of COVID, was her sense that the deployment of the vaccine has not just been inequitable, but the result of having VIP access very restricted for both the monoclonal antibody therapies and the vaccines has made it doubly restrictive and unhelpful for many people in society who would jump at the opportunity to have access. I'm wondering if you hear something similar in terms of the overlapping restrictions on both the VIP treatment of the monoclonal antibodies and the very rigid parameters governing most states in their rollouts of the vaccines. Yeah, I think the trouble with both the vaccines and the monoclonal antibodies is that we are in a condition of scarcity. There simply are not enough for all the folks that want them. And for now, uh, for the vaccines, they have been prioritized for the folks who are most likely to get really sick, hospitalized, and die. And that's a decision that we've made as a society um, to prioritize the elderly and those in long-term care facilities first, uh, and then those with existing comorbid conditions who are more likely to die before we open it up to the rest of society, knowing that um, there are folks that are going to get infected while waiting for a vaccine, very sadly. And I've taken care of those people in the ER who've told me, oh, I was getting my vaccine in three weeks and here I am in the hospital, right? So that's been a bioethics decision that is driven by the fact that there simply isn't enough. Um, it's not based off of, you know, saying that one group doesn't deserve it, um, but it's just the fact that when there isn't enough, you've, you've got to take care of those who are going to die without it. The other side for the monoclonal antibodies, the EUA is really it's for those, um, again, higher risk groups, which is where they have been shown to be effective. Um, and there is, again, a lack of the, of the monoclonal antibodies. We have a waiting list at my own hospital um, where we, we don't have enough um, or we didn't have enough early on, at least, to give it to everyone who was eligible um, because we had so many people who were sick who had comorbidities um, that we simply couldn't get them in the door. Um, we didn't have enough doses to get everyone in the door. I think the the prevalence of the 65 and higher or 75 age and higher uh, protocol uh, for eligibility um, has led people to believe that there is a, a kind of generational access mm. uh, limitation or barrier. I understand the point you're making about scarcity, but being the emergency care professional that you are, 
Do you sympathize with that notion or do you think that it's, there's some truth to it? So I certainly sympathize with it. And I'll say that I have taken care of a bunch of patients um, with long COVID symptoms. It is a difficult and frustrating disease for normally healthy people to end up with weeks or months of debilitating symptoms. And I was so excited today in the press conference um, that the White House held to hear Dr. Fauci discuss um, the huge amounts of investment that the NIH are going to put into studying what they're calling PASC instead of long COVID or the post-acute sequelae of COVID disorder, which is very, very real. Um, So I absolutely sympathize. My own husband has not been vaccinated. Um, But you know what? My parents, who are elderly and who have been staying at home nonstop, also uh, faced barriers in getting vaccinated. And many elderly folks across the United States still have not gotten their first doses um, so I don't think it's so much of prioritizing one generation over another as much as, again, recognizing what the primary purpose of the vaccine was, which is first to stop hospitalizations and deaths, and then to stop morbidity or long COVID, period, and to reopen our society. I really think that we are all going to be eligible for these vaccines and have the chance to get them within a month or two. So it's not about saying that people who are under age 65 are not going to get it. It's just to hold on for a little bit longer so our parents and grandparents can get it first because they are the ones who are highest risk for dying. I think you were confirming, just to make sure I got it right, that you have encountered in your care of patients, um, folks as young as 20-somethings through their middle ages who have months-long recovery processes and and long-haul symptoms. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you think of the public health landscape, one of the very strong voices um, for at-home rapid testing has been Michael Minna, also Eric Topol. Um, We've hosted both on this broadcast. And they both believe very vehemently that um, it is not only a deficit in our arsenal to control the virus, but it is the FDA's culpability and their refusal to permit certain at-home testing technology from being deployed, that that very fact has led to more morbidity and fatalities. Again, as someone who is very closely connected to patients and patient care, uh, Do you share those concerns about the fact that a lot of testing technologies have been dormant and pending and unapproved? And if we're ever going to get back to normalcy, testing will have to be vastly enhanced from what it is today. Yes, and. Um, It's funny. So Ashisha and I actually just had Michael on our pandemic problem-solving course, um, which we're running through Brown yesterday. So we had a nice discussion with him about this very issue. I do absolutely agree that we have been delayed in testing, but it's not just the at-home testing. We've had trouble with approval, production, and dissemination of testing, period, across the United States. Um, but these rapid at-home tests are an essential part of our moving forwards, and we do need to decouple them from physician control. I absolutely agree with both Michael and Eric on that point. 
There are also other things, though, that need to be done. The FDA, at the same time that we didn't approve some of these at-home tests, we rushed through approval of many other tests, which have since been shown to not be accurate, particularly antibody tests, but also some of the antigen tests, those rapid tests. And inaccurate results are worse than no results. And we have delays in approvals of many new mask technologies, which from my perspective, from that public health perspective, testing is critical, but so is masking. And if you go to the FDA website right now to sort out which masks have received emergency use authorization as being equivalent to an N95 is really difficult. And that's a huge barrier for the public as well. So we really need all of these different strategies. We need not just testing, but also great masking and also great data collection um, in order to effectively conquer this pandemic. And of course, we need vaccines in arms, which is really our light at the end of the tunnel. Tests only work if they're used and if their results are followed. The vaccines are going to be far better um, and more effective in stopping the pandemic than tests ever would be. The trouble is that some of the facets of implementation you're describing, while there may be funding in the American Rescue Plan, and to some extent there may not be funding in that package, um, if we don't have the authorization for the vaccines or for the testing or for the nationwide mask distribution, which I do not believe is part of this legislation that it's is nearing the president's signature. The, the question is, if you were to assess where we are closing in on President Biden's first 100 days, uh, where do you see um, the, the fault lines of, of where you know progress has been promised but is likely not to be delivered? Yeah, it's a a great question. I mean, I think part of the trouble is, is that we didn't know what a mess we were in until they took over. And I feel like so much of the first 100 days has been spent sorting out um, exactly what the truth is. We also have to remember, we still don't have um, a secretary of health and human services or an FDA director um, in place. And those are problems um, as we're creating a national strategy. Um, I think to me, from my perspective, the vaccine distribution is the biggest thing and the vaccine communication is the second biggest thing. That really is our light at the end of the tunnel. You know, today's press conference announced um, that the administration is going to uh, distribute somewhere around 13 million masks um, to community health centers and food pantries across the United States. They're doing that before the rescue package is even signed. So there is progress there. And then for the testing, I'm hopeful um, that the new FDA, you know, whoever gets chosen, um, will will move that forwards. But again, it has to be accompanied by funding. And that funding needs to go to local public health departments. What we have seen over and over again through this pandemic is that our state and county public health departments are just stretched so thin. So we're seeing testing sites shut down in order to open up vaccine sites. Um, that to me is really the, the linchpin um, of getting all the parts um, of this response to work together. We recently hosted um, Susan Rogers, who's part of a coalition of physicians for national health reform. Um, how urgent do you find to be the systemic changes um, that this 
pandemic inspired in, in us a greater understanding of crisis, the crisis of inequity, the crisis of inaccessible care, um, and unequal care. Um, this question of systemic health reform has, has kind of, if it was evident in the beginning of the pandemic, um, about whether something like a public option or single payer universal care, um, it seems as though that's quieted to a pretty clear halt. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that that should have equal urgency in understanding that this pandemic event should trigger incrementally, if not immediately, systemic reform to the American healthcare system. Now, I've said over and over again over the past year um, that as an ER doc, one of my jobs is putting band-aids on the structural failures of our society and particularly of our healthcare system. And the pandemic has exposed and pulled off all of those band-aids. All the ways in which we held people's lives together um, by, you know, patching up um, these problems here and there. Um, those ways have really fallen apart. And these are things that many of us have been talking about for years. Um, The problems with the supply chain, whether for PPE or testing or pharmaceuticals, those are not new. The problems with lack of 21st century infrastructure for data and for uh, our public health departments, that is not new. Um, the underfunding of preventive care, the willingness to spend trillions of dollars on life-saving end-of-life procedures, and the unwillingness to do those basic non-pharmaceutical interventions, that too is not new. And the pandemic has just shown it all in all of its horrific reality, um, the structural racism. I mean, many of us have been talking for years about the disparities in maternal mortality, the disparities in pain treatment. And we've seen it again, that the light has been shown on the fact that Black, Brown, and Native American folks across the United States are disproportionately at risk of getting infected, hospitalized, or dying from COVID-19, just as they're disproportionately at risk of dying from a firearm, of having obesity or asthma or any other disease that's out there. So is there an urgency to fixing the healthcare system? Absolutely. And one of my dreams and hopes is that we'll use this moment to drive it, to say, wow, these were all the things that went wrong over the past year. They were all predictable. They were all preventable. We've done a lot to start to fix these underlying problems. And we're going to commit to fixing them, not just for COVID, but also for opioids and cancer prevention and kids vaccinations and mental health. And, you know, it's all the same thing at the end of the day. One may be infectious, one may not, but at the end of the day, it's all still a health problem. When we discussed this with Dr. Rogers, I asked her about the overwhelming reality, which is that the political will in both major political parties isn't there to resolve the systemic issues. So is there a universe in which they can be resolved without politicians who stand up for this kind of systemic policy reworking and, and reform that whereas medical systems like your own and others, private and nonprofit doctors, nurses, and 
pharmaceutical companies would all together find some way forward to put in front of these politicians who seem, of course, reluctant to do anything significant? Yeah, I, I think yes and no. So one of my greatest joys out of the past year um, has been seeing exactly what you just mentioned, um, nonprofits, informal coalitions of healthcare providers, patients, uh, large companies, seeing us join together to do the right thing. Um, as you know, I co-founded an organization, Get Us PPE, which has been dedicated to delivering donated personal protective equipment to those who need it most for the past year. Originally, we gave it to ER docs and nurses and folks working in ICUs. Now, 90% of the need that we identify um, comes from outside of the hospital. It comes from nursing home workers and homeless shelters and uh, folks working in clinics or as home health aides. Um, we have succeeded as an organization because of the genuine goodness of ordinary Americans, as well as the generosity of American corporations who have donated millions of pieces of PPE to us that we can then distribute. Um, and that gives me hope. Um, things like watching how CVS has worked to um, create a testing infrastructure and to create a data system behind testing and vaccines that simply did not exist, that too gives me hope. So I think there are a lot of things that we can do as a society independently of the government, but, but, but we do need some policy change. And I'm going to give you an example. Telehealth. We've seen, you know, 200% increases in the number of telehealth visits during COVID. That's partly because in-person doctor visits shut down for a bit, um, but it's also partly because of policy changes that allowed physicians and other healthcare professionals to get reimbursed for telehealth and that allowed healthcare professionals to use things that may not be HIPAA compliant, things like Zoom, FaceTime, WhatsApp, to deliver that telehealth. Um, and so those policy changes made a huge difference in terms of our ability to meet patients where they were at. So you do need some policy changes to back it up. Finally, I do not think that we're going to see wholesale uh, changes in the insurance market without there being governmental action. That part is not going to happen really through private public partnerships, um, although we can change a lot of the other stuff around the edges that has a major impact on health. Doctor, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate uh, all of your insights and the care that you provide everyone out there. Thank you again. It's my pleasure. It's a delight to join you.